Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Miss the show, no worries. We've got you covered on point and on the podcast. The collateral damage of this pandemic includes a huge spike in eating disorders, and those don't go away once the pandemic ends. A nursing home of horrors. I mean, why would caregivers take the doorknobs off of doors trapping COVID patients inside, and where else might it be happening? And the Trudeau government served up with a lawsuit over these COVID quarantine hotels that the complainant accuses violate our charter rights. Let's get talking. I can tell you that the federal government has uh, secured and paid for enough vaccines to get all Canadians who want it vaccinated by uh, this September, uh, including uh, the entire population of Manitoba. Well, Justin Trudeau can talk about securing vaccines all he wants. The problem, though, Canadians no longer believe he'll deliver. I don't really know how you feel. I mean, it feels like we've been working at warp speed of late. You know, it's, uh, I mean, we haven't gone anywhere, but I think we're going to just have to spend more time with the people we can't escape. So, okay, here we go. And depending on uh, where you are, I mean, I'm looking at my window. We got a little bit of snow, but it's, if I didn't know, if I didn't see the news, I wouldn't know that Hamilton, Burlington got hit the way they did, or if my sister didn't call me, because you guys are getting a whole bunch of snow, but uh, welcome to it. There you go. And it's also Valentine's Day, as you well know by now, on Sunday. I don't know who is feeling romantic these days. I just don't. And I feel for the businesses, because of course, it's a massive day of business for them that they can't... uh, really um, profit off of because no one's going to be dining out. So I guess the most romantic thing I can think of is just a day of peace and quiet. Peace and quiet. So if you're listening, dear, do not get flowers. I just want quiet. That's all I ask. Uh, Today also is uh, an anniversary, and it's really, really hard to believe, but it has been one year since uh, we lost Christy Blatchford, who uh, lost her battle with cancer. And um, it all happened rather suddenly because she kept it very, very quiet, including to her friends. And uh, just before COVID took over our lives, we were uh, expecting to have a memorial service for her. But like so many other things in life, it was canceled. So we've not actually had any kind of celebration of her life, which is so, so very sad. And I think about her a lot. You know, she was a good friend. And uh, she was just such a damn good writer, you know. She was very blunt, as you well know, and she didn't suffer fools. And what she wrote about mattered. Uh, you know, she would tackle the topics that very uh, few would or could, you know. She wasn't afraid of cancel culture. She had very little time for it. She wouldn't have put up with it. And she was smart. You know, she had the ability, you know, I'd sit there in court watching her, and I, I would watch all the testimonies she did, and then she, I'd read her story and say, oh, my God, I didn't even hear that. Because she had the ability to to zero in 
on on a very small detail that most of us would miss and then bring that to life. And, and it really was the very essence of a story. And so she had the ability to break down these very technical, you know, and controversial topics. And she was one of very few in this country who could actually, you know, hold people to account. You know, the politicians knew she would call their BS and it would actually have an impact. So I, I feel that we are a lot lesser because of her loss. And um, I think she would have had a lot to say about COVID, this whole gong show that we're watching. You know, she would have had zero time for the morning campaign pressers that Trudeau holds, you know, or, or any of these kind of nonsensical decisions that we're seeing being made, you know, on and on as we go through this. You know, she'd have no time for the games being played. So we mark this one year and, uh, and we miss you, Blatch. We miss you. It looks like the Canadian uh, people do not like these games either. And the Prime Minister was pressed uh, over and over again today on vaccine deliveries this morning. And it's all just a numbers game. Like, it's all a moving, like the peanut shell game you get at the park, but you never win the game because the peanut's never there. You know, and he's really digging in on the talking point that we're getting vaccines by September. But we're now ranked 47 in the world. And it's all fine and dandy that we're told we've got millions and millions coming by June. Um, but I don't, I'm, we don't want to hear about the contracts. Let's see the goods. Okay, the talk is very cheap. And new polling by Angus Reid reveals that uh, Canadians believe Trudeau has failed on vaccines. 59%, we're talking three in five, do not think he's done a good job. That is not a small number. And only a third believe we're actually getting that vaccination by September. And so unless a miracle arrives, this is big trouble for him because the variants are now spreading across eight provinces. And now we're hearing all this talk about this big third wave that's going to be a disaster. And if we keep seeing the delays that we get every day, the frustration is just going to keep festering because Moderna just delayed yet another delivery. And it's already 1.3 million doses behind the delivery date. And I have to think, you know, if he were so confident about the September delivery date, why is he then like taken from poor countries through the, the COVAX program? Or, you know, why is he begging India's prime minister for help? I mean, that's a big thing because relations are so bad with India that for him to actually have to call and beg for help tells me that he's in big trouble. And there's also, you know, you can look at the timing, the timing of when the bulk of these millions of vaccines are supposed to arrive, I would just imagine it's around the time of a spring election, you know? So we've got nothing now, looks bad, and then all of a sudden all these vaccines are going to pour in just in time to get to the polls. I mean, it's, I'm sure it's all just a coinkydink, but, you know, just putting it out there. <laughs> Absolutely. He also announced uh, these travel uh, restrictions that kick in February 22nd. I don't understand what's going on. I thought there were already restrictions in place because people have been, you know, getting pulled off of planes and put in these COVID hotels. So if the restrictions kick in on the February the 22nd, why are people getting dragged off of planes now? But he says, you know, it's all to stop the variants from spreading. Has, has no one told this guy that they're here? I mean, really? Like, these measures should have been put in place months ago. I don't even... Why are we bothering now? This is ridiculous. We've got hundreds of cases of these variants here. So it looks like something's being done. But this is just kabuki theater. The whole thing for the last year has been kabuki theater. A very predictable theme at multiple levels of government during this pandemic. 
What we really just need are the damned vaccines, right? Just focus on that. Stop making up things that you look like you're talking about and doing. Just get the vaccines, you know? But we've got a busy show. We are going to actually talk about a lawsuit that has been launched against the Trudeau government. And I think this is the first, and it's on the grounds that these uh, COVID quarantines are unconstitutional. You know, and I think um, it's probably only the beginning. I mean, this kind of stuff of dragging people off of planes, this is the kind of stuff we hear about going on in China. It, it, like, it should not be happening here. And, and that it does, and that people kind of shrug their shoulders, I find it just a bit concerning. So we'll talk about that. Um, we'll talk about this horrific story out of Curtis, because I'd love to know who the genius is who thought it a good idea, let alone, you know, at all acceptable to remove the doorknobs of doors and, and trapping elderly COVID patients inside for days. Like, really? Because that's not an iron ring. That That is like... It should be a criminal investigation as far as I'm concerned. It's horrific. So heads should roll. And I, I just like, what are we allowing to happen in this country? Like, how is this okay? It's just crazy. But some stuff that we're watching happen, it makes you wonder. Stay with us on point. I'm Alex Pearson. This is Global News Radio. This is eating disorder visits uh, and admissions to hospital for Ontarians uh, three years to 17 years of age. Uh, if you look at where the pandemic would have started, really kind of that uh, April or March or April uh, period of time, uh, you can see a substantial increase in the rate of admissions and the rate of hospital, uh, sorry, emergency department visits. Uh, the dotted line in each case indicates the average rate, and it has climbed significantly for both of these measures. That uh, was Dr. Staney Brown at Thursday's modeling presser, and that um, moment where he said that, it stuck out for me. Um, because he was pointing out the mental health issues that these lockdowns are causing. And um, this this spike that we're seeing in eating disorders is is been kind of going around for the last couple of months. But it is, it is part of the collateral damage of this pandemic. And SickKids and other health experts have been warning the flags on this, you know, that there are costs to what we do when we lock down societies. And the virus will eventually end. But anyone who has ever had an eating disorder or knows someone who's had one, this is not an illness that goes away. It is one of the most complex mental health issues because it's an illness of control. And right now for a lot of people, especially younger people, they are out of control. And, but other, other like um, illnesses, you know, you can live without alcohol, you can live without drugs, but you can't live without food, which just presents a never-ending challenge for those who are inflicted by this. Caitlin Axelrod is a program director at Sheena's Place, and I thank you for spending some time with me on this Friday. Hi, thanks for having me. So I heard this a couple of months ago, and I thought, oh boy, this is a big price to pay. Like, no one wants to get COVID, but at the same time, these mental health issues, they don't go away once COVID does. And, and the concern is that some of the younger people who are starting to either fall into this, um, you know, this is something that they will have to deal for their entire life. Yeah, so we're definitely seeing an increase in eating disorders um, kind of across the board since the pandemic started. There's data from Toronto, from across Canada and globally showing those increases mm -hmm. in people of all ages as well. So at Sheena's Place, we actually we work with people ages 17 and older. Uh, and we're seeing the same thing among adults of all ages as we are among young people. 
And explain to me the psychology, because not everyone understands it, um, if you haven't had a loved one who has been inflicted with this. But, you know, right now, I think people are scared. They, they don't know what they don't know. And so this kind of sets in how. Yeah, so there are so many ways that an eating disorder can develop. Um, no, you know, one eating disorder looks the same. It's a very diverse type of mental health challenge. Uh, I won't get too much into the into the nitty-gritty details, but um, they arise out of different biological factors, uh, psychological factors, and social factors. So it's kind of a perfect storm that will um, cause someone to experience symptoms. So they might have a genetic predisposition, and then maybe they'll be placed in an environment that, uh, again, triggers those symptoms. So that could be uh, experiencing trauma. It could be, you know, living in a society with very specific beauty standards and, mm-hmm. you know, the impact of social media. Um, and so it looks really different um, for different people. However, some common, you know, functions of eating disorder symptoms include, as you said, maintaining control. So that's a really common one. Uh, and especially right now, like you said, we're in a world with uh, a lot of uncertainty. So maintaining control is huge. Um, but one of the even bigger functions of eating disorder symptoms is uh, to cope with difficult emotions. And so we see that a lot with binge eating, which is the most common right. eating disorder symptom um, as well. I mean, as with restriction as well, that can be a way to cope with difficult emotions. Um, so that's a, a kind of common thread for a lot of people. And it can morph. I mean, it can start with the food and the control of the food, but it can morph into things like workout bulimia. It's like constantly striving for for control of different areas. Absolutely. And for some people, it's really about that control. And that can, like you said, manifest in different ways. So with restriction, with exercise, with eating, um, and often people do move between different symptom profiles. So something might start out as often we'll see people who start out restricting and then end up binging because that's a very normal biological response for the body. Uh, And for some people, you know, control is a part of it. And also there's so much else going on. And um, again, with emotions, with trauma, uh, a lot of these things, regardless of the pandemic would be happening, but because of the pandemic, fewer supports are available to people, which might be making their situation worse. Obviously, girls are, are seen as the, the main, um, you know, group in this. But are you, I mean, boys do also go through this. Are you, are you seeing a specific um, kind of trend in one or the other? Are you seeing both? So, yes, people of all genders get eating disorders. The myth is, the common stereotype is that uh, primarily women are affected or girls. However, um, men and boys do get eating disorders. You know, we, we see men and boys coming into Sheena's place. Uh, I will say that we see more women, um, and that isn't necessarily a reflection of the prevalence, but more of the stigma, of the recognition of um, having an eating disorder. Uh, and importantly, people who are trans and non-binary are actually at a much higher risk of developing an eating disorder than cisgendered men or women. And what is, um, you know, what is it that parents um, or people should be watching for as far as the signs? Yeah, so there are so many signs. um, And what can be tricky about eating disorders is that often there's a lot of guilt and shame associated with the symptoms. So signs might actually be pretty hard to notice if people are going to great lengths to hide uh, their symptoms or those signs, again, because of that uh, guilt and shame. And so some things to look out for are a preoccupation with food or weight. Um, so 
you know, cutting a lot of things out of one's diet or maybe eating in secret. Um, so those sort of behaviors around food, um, really rigid exercise routines as well. Um, and some of the more obvious signs around purging, so vomiting and use of diuretics and laxatives. So those things, again, can be hard to notice. But something worth noting is, you know, you might see a significant weight change in someone as a result of their eating disorder symptoms, but often you don't. And so it can be really hard to tell um, what's going on because of that. Especially when you get someone who will put on a couple of baggy sweaters and then all of a sudden you, you don't see it and, and then you say, oh, wow, okay, now I see what's, you know, if you ever see the person without the clothing, you say, gee, I never even noticed. What um, what resources then, because there are, are such challenges right now with mental health, um, and, and you guys have been around for so, so long, but what are the, the resources available right now? Mm-hmm. So, yes, we, we're celebrating our 25th anniversary this year. We've been providing group support for that entire time. Um, when the pandemic started, uh, we at Sheena's Place moved online. So we were providing everything in person, and now everything is online, which means that more people are able to access our services from a geographic standpoint and also physical accessibility. Um, I will say that, you know, we're offering 21 weekly groups right now. They are almost all full with very long wait lists, some up to 100 people per group. That Jeez. said, um, we restart. Uh, so something unique about our program is that we restart registration every season. And so the wait lists don't carry over, um, meaning that if anyone does need support, um, our spring season will start at the end of March and registration for that is mid-March. So um, there are options The you know, you don't need to wait for years and years to get support from us. Um, another great resource that I'll point out is NEDIC, the National Eating Disorder Information Center. So they are a, um, an organization that provides um, information about uh, treatment programs, support programs all across Canada. And so anyone can call their helpline to get information about where to get support. And and if a parent thinks that their child might be going through this, is going through a place like Sick Kids kind of the first step? Yes. So. For young people, uh, hospital-based treatment is the first step because, of course, eating disorders can be very detrimental to people of all ages, especially when people are growing. Um, the, the effects can be even more uh, detrimental. So going through a family doctor to get a referral to sick kids is ideal. I know the wait list is really long, um, but something else I will encourage folks to do if you are you know, a parent or a family member of someone struggling is to get support for yourself as well. And so at Sheena's Place and at other organizations across Canada, um, there are caregiver support groups, and that's something that's definitely worth taking advantage of. Well, it's a shame that we hear that the numbers are going up, but nonetheless, it is just one of the, uh, you know, one of these things that this pandemic has caused, and we shouldn't turn a blind eye to it. So I appreciate your time on this. And I will just add that, you know, although eating disorders can be uh, very chronic illnesses, recovery is possible. So it's not like, you know, once someone is diagnosed or experiences the symptoms that they're stuck with that forever, recovery does happen. And the earlier someone seeks support, the higher the chances of that are. Yeah, and puts the work into it. Yes. Okay, Caitlin, thank you so much for uh, joining us. We'll chat again. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks so much.
That is Caitlin Axelrod, and she is with Sheena's Place, and they've been a- around for a good long time, but there is information about there. But again, when everyone says lockdown, don't worry, that's how we're going to stay safe. Well, yeah, it is, but, you know, we're seeing a lot of other issues pop up in mental health issues um, that are going to drive a different kind of pandemic as we uh, move along with this thing. I'm Alex Pearson on Point. This is Global News Radio. Well, let's dig into this very horrific story coming to us from um, a retirement home in Curtis. And this is a story City News broke when a whistleblower came forward saying management removed the door handles from rooms where COVID-positive residents were said to be rooming. So basically jailing them in their rooms. And apparently this went on for days. And not only is this not just disgusting, it is degrading. It's also very dangerous. I mean, what if a fire had broken out? That was one of my first thoughts. And the home is called Whitecliff Terrace Retirement Residence. And apparently they say they did this so that people couldn't move around. But really? Like, is this what we have come to in this country where we can treat our most vulnerable like that? Because they can't fight back. And I, I gotta, I gotta wonder where else are these kinds of horror stories taking place? Let us bring in someone who might be able to answer those questions. Laura Tamlin Watts, president and CEO of Can Egg. And what was your reaction, Laura, when you heard this? You think you've heard everything, and then you hear another thing that makes your jaw drop. This must be entirely clear: is criminal behavior. This is unlawful confinement. As you say, it is dangerous. It is a violation of human rights. And it is actually imprisoning people. And let's be also clear, a retirement home is a residential tenancy that you then pay for additional services. This isn't even a long-term care home, not that that would make it better, but this is an apartment building essentially with services. And yet the door handles are being taken off and people are being detained. Yeah, I mean, there are, I mean, I think this is just the start of this story as to where it goes, because there are a number of avenues it can go down. It could go down charter challenges. It could turn into civil suits. We could turn into all sorts of things, criminal action, all of that yet to be determined. But this is a place where, uh, you know, people pay actually a fair amount of money, $3,400 a month for a 215 square foot studio apartment up to $6,000. And when people pay for that kind of care, I mean, it's not a long-term care home, but you would think... Um, you know, you're paying for that kind of service. So I think most people would assume that the very best care is being given to their loved one. In this case, you know, our hopes about the best care is as shockingly opposite as it could possibly be. People with COVID-19 have rights. Older people have rights. The fact that this home, and I appreciate that it would have been one or two people that did it from the sense of the story, you know, has to answer some very difficult questions. How was it that anybody thought it was a good idea to not just not provide care, but to actually take away a person's liberty and freedom? It's a stunning, stunning realization. Yeah, and and I'll put out there, I mean, these are allegations, so none of it has been proved, and that will come out in in time, I'm sure. But, you know, you you instantly, when you hear these stories, you wonder, well, where else is this happening? Because um, this pandemic has exposed, I think, the worst of the worst, worst of how 
some of the most vulnerable people in our, our country have been treated. I mean, there were stories out of a Hamilton area home where, uh, you know, the elderly were being chained or tied to radiators so they couldn't wander around. I mean, what what you get the sense of is that the inspections aren't being done properly. They're not being done enough. There's no accountability. And for me, it's not a private versus public thing. The whole system needs to be overhauled, period. It does. And the good point is that we actually know how to do it. We have enough information. We know what models work. We know what's needed in terms of both types of care and hours of care. What we need to see is the governments actually get down to investing in it and not starting to play politics on this issue. This is a nonpartisan issue, and yet what we're starting to already see is federal and provincial governments starting to lobby back and forth about the question of national long-term care standards. And when we think about what it is that we need to do and how to change, it really is stunning when we hear statements from Aaron O'Toole saying that he is not for national long-term care standards. How can you not want to fix this system when we have the tools and ability to do so baffles me. Yeah, I just don't know how it could be fixed because you put it to the national level and then, of course, you create a bigger bureaucracy. I mean, to me, the whole system has to change um, just in fundamentally how we think about our elderly because we are the ones who are going to be there next. And, and if we don't want it to get even worse, it is in our best interest to make sure it is fixed moving forward. And I say the whole, um, you know, the whole warehousing of people has to end. I mean, obviously, if you've got dementia, Alzheimer's, there are certain cases where people do need to have some kind of facility to go to, but we have to start investing so that people can either keep their loved ones at home or that we get rid of this warehousing of people that essentially, you know, turn into these kind of jail settings. The, the entire system needs to be turned upside down, and that's fairly well accepted. We need a care at home system yeah, for sure, as its for sure. primary model. And the good thing is this, it's what people want and it's the least expensive way of getting it. And when we look at the Nordic models, for instance, where in some cases long-term care homes haven't been built for more than a decade, it is because we have physicians, healthcare providers, physiotherapists, other types of allied health professions coming to you at home, wherever mm -hmm. that home is. And home care needs to be really invested in. Again, it's the big push that we need to make for policymakers. We will always need, as you've said, some congregate housing, but it must not be large institutions that feel like warehousing, but smaller, innovative home-like models like dementia villages and other sort of 8 mm -hmm. to 20-person homes where people can be connected, have social inclusion, but get the care they need. The models exist. We just need to invest in them. Yeah, there are some terrific models I've heard about where they get very creative and it's, um, you know, these homes can be very nurturing to the elderly, especially if you've got uh, dementia or Alzheimer's, where the people are not treated like a bother, but they are, are constantly stimulated and cared for. Um, and you hear about it being done and you never hear about it being implemented. We're starting to see that what we call emotion-focused care 
being taken up. For instance, the city of Toronto last year unanimously passed through council that they would implement emotion-focused care in all of their municipal homes. And that really has a number of different brands. Some call it the greenhouse model or the butterfly model. There's many different names. But it's the idea Mm -hmm. of using the person as a person as the center of care, not as a subject to treatment. And it's usually less expensive and safer for both staff and residents. So we can do it. It just requires a focus and an investment to start it going. Well, yeah, and had that investment been made um, a long time ago, and this is decades, um, you know, we might not be witnessing what we are uh, today, but the investment has not been made. We've allowed it to decay like this, and now we are ultimately uh, not seeing an iron ring. We're now seeing uh, people jailed in their rooms. It's crazy. When we're looking at what we need to do, I mean, it can't be more clear that we need older people to be able to age in place. We need caregiver supports to help that happen. And we also need to have both federal and provincial dollars to invest because our systems have been starved for years and people Mm -hmm. have been living longer and are more frail. And so the homes that have been designed were designed for people who didn't have the degree of dementia or frailty who are there right now. The good news is this, you know, we just need to implement it. And I'm hopeful that COVID-19 has, in some cases, made that clear that we have to move forward with this investment. On the other hand, when we hear cases like this, it really makes me worry. Yeah. Well, if we're not clear, we're going to remain uh, complacent and we just really have no excuse. Uh, So we'll uh, see where this story takes us. Always appreciate your time, Laura. Thank you. Thanks, Alex. Laura Tamlin Watts joining us. And again, not a partisan issue for me. I don't care because we're all getting into these places at some point and it is in our best interest to make sure that they are improved. The sadness is that we didn't do it for the people now going through it. That's that is a true travesty. Alex Pearson on point at Global News Radio. Later today, Ministers Haidu, Blair and LeBlanc will announce the details of new testing, quarantine and enforcement for everyone flying or driving back to Canada. These measures will take effect starting February 22nd. Putting these additional measures in place is a true team effort. To Canadian Airlines and border, effort, border agents, thank you. To public health employees, to hotel workers and owners, thank you for all the work you're doing and for doing your part. Okie dokie, there's the Prime Minister talking about uh, measures that, you know, if they're coming in on the 22nd, my first question was, why are people already being dragged away off of planes and locked into COVID hotels? Because it's already happening. And um, today's announcement on travel restrictions doesn't just come a little bit too late, but these measures clearly violate the basics of our charter. Um, and the CEO of a Canadian pot company realizes that and is now suing the Trudeau government because he's worried that if he flies home from his vacation home in St. Martin, then he will find himself thrown into one of these COVID hotels. And this is not about whether you agree with Mr. Colvin traveling at this time because he left the country before restrictions were even announced. But he, I think like a lot of people, don't believe that this government knows what it's doing and is concerned his constitutional rights will be taken away by restrictions. The kinds of things that we expect to see in China, and they might be able to get away with it, but it should not be happening in this country. And that it is, and it's kind of being met with a shrug, 
should raise a few red flags. Jeffrey Rath is a lawyer and constitutional legal expert with Rath and Company. Good to have you, sir. Nice to be here, Alex. Thank you for having me on. Well, I saw this case and I thought maybe this is the fir- is this the first um, case uh, to be um, launched. To our knowledge, it is, and I'm sure okay. it'll be followed by you know it'll probably be followed by hundreds of others. But we're the relief we're seeking is broad. We've intentionally filed in the federal court, and we intend the declarations that we obtain to apply to the entire country. Okay, yeah, I thought, I thought, I thought, yeah, this has got to be the first because I have not yet heard of another. But you represent um, the 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 person of this case, Dominic Colvin, and um, this isn't about if he's traveling or if he's got money or whatever. This is the principle of what he is arguing for, and no one can be refused entry into this country. But what is so shocking to me is how many people have already been dragged off with zero due process. And so am I confused here thinking that the rules were already in place or like did they just announce them today and they're coming into effect on the 22nd? Because that to me makes it even worse. Oh, you're not, I don't think you're confused in the least. I mean, what we have is we have, uh, you know, Prime Minister Trudeau thinking he's either the, you know, either the chairman of the Communist Party of China or the dictator of Cuba. Uh, you know, being able to arbitrarily incarcerate Canadian citizens at whim in violation yeah. of Section 6 of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which says clearly that Canadians are free to enter and, you know, to, to leave and enter the country. I woke you know, we all woke up the day after the minister's announcement to say, isn't that wonderful? We're now prisoners of Justin Trudeau. We're not allowed to leave the country on pain of incarceration if we return. On what planet is this allowed to happen? Well, you know, it, that's a good question. Uh, it, it's something that I never thought I'd see in this country, but we heard cases, or a couple of cases that came to us out of Calgary with one mother watching her son get dragged off about a week and a half ago, and for days she had no idea where he was. And even if you were charged with murder, you would have more due process than some kid getting off a plane who actually went through the steps of getting a PV, uh, PCR test or, or tried to do everything by the book, and, and, and the rules weren't even in place at that time. And so, I, I mean, you've got agents arbitrarily across this country acting uh, on legislation or rules that have not even been put in place. I mean... I don't understand how this and is happening. And it's going to get worse. And that's one of the issues that Mr. Colvin has, is that under, you know, the previous announcement, but I didn't hear the Prime Minister contradict that, um, you know, it's a mandatory three-day incarceration. But then if you test positive, um, it's a mandatory 14-day incarceration. And even if um, uh, they determine that somehow or other you don't have a quote-unquote acceptable quarantine plan, uh, they can lock you up. So what you have is you have Trudeau's rent-a-cops, so effectively mm-hmm. private security, arbitrarily making decisions at the border as to whose um, uh, quarantine plans are acceptable or not. And if somebody arbitrarily decides they don't like somebody's quarantine plan, they can ar- incarcerate them in some holding facility for a further 14 days. This was in the country I grew up in. I'm not you know, I, I can't for the life of me believe that uh, Prime Minister Trudeau thinks that he's going to survive electorally after this boondoggle. I mean, the vaccines well, are bad enough, but to do this is just incredible. Well, it is, but I, I think a lot of people just don't understand uh, their rights, um, and which is sad. But, I mean, the bottom line is, um, who are, are these agents to decide what is an acceptable uh, quarantine? I mean, if you get off a plane in this country, you cannot be denied entry. 
But at the same time, uh, there has to be some kind of system that you are read some kind of well, rights or you get a phone call or you can get access to a lawyer. I mean, that's just done ba- in basic criminal law. Well, the, the issue here as well is that in the provinces, like Calgary is an example, there's been some real horror stories coming out of the Calgary airport of people being yeah, bunged of in all places. Bands and being hauled off to detention where, you know, where they're only allowed out of their rooms for 15 minutes a day. I mean, prisoners in the Florence Supermax in Colorado get more yard time than people in Trudeau's uh, um, incarceration facilities. You know, that's, that's one issue. But then the other issue is, in these provinces, if, even if somebody tests positive and is symptomatic for COVID-19, they're trusted by the Alberta government to drive from their home to a testing centre, to get tested, to drive themselves back to their home, to isolate for the two or three days while they're awaiting the test result. Then when they have the test result, if they're positive, they're trusted to quarantine themselves in their home for the 14-day period. So what Trudeau has to account for and what they have to justify under the Oaks test is why are international travelers or citizens of Canada who've traveled internationally being treated any differently than other citizens of the province? And from our perspective, legally, none of this is justifiable under the Oaks test. And it's time for Mr. Trudeau to come to court and justify what he's doing to civil rights in this country, which is just an abomination. We're not in FL2 Quebec in 1972, and I've got news for him. He's not his father. Well, well, no, no, he's not. Uh, but Bill Blair should know this. I mean, he himself uh, was on the other end of a lawsuit given the kettling issue in G20, the, one of the country's greatest violations of civil rights, um, you know, when people were innocent people. And I, I barely managed to escape it, but were kettled as they walked by and found themselves, you know, in detention centers for hours at a time with absolutely no idea what they had done wrong. So he should know better than anybody uh, that there has to be a system in place and it has to go by the rules. And it sounds kind of like they've just thrown this thing together, but they ought to have known that there had to be a process in place. And so what would you be telling people? Because I'm getting people asking me all sorts of questions like, what can I do and what can't I do? Like, can I drive into the United States to go get something and come back? Like, what am I facing? And it sounds to me like it's kind of a patchwork of you take your chances. Well, that's, and that's exactly the problem. And that's why with regard to the application that we filed on behalf of Mr. Colvin, we're seeking emergency relief from the federal court. We're not applying for an injunction, but we're filing for an expedited judicial review to get this in front of a judge as quickly as possible, given the egregious nature of the violation of the rights of all Canadians and the, uh, you know, and the, you know, and the absolute mischief that's going to be wreaked, uh, you know, on all, you know, all the citizens of this country, you know, over, you know, over the coming weeks, given the sheer stupidity of this program. But they would have lawyers on staff that look at this kind of thing. And so surely someone in the, the highest levels of government might say, you're going to have some real issues here. I mean, this is the, the party of the charter. Well, you know, let's. Let's Supposed face it. Most of the Department of Ju- most of the Department of Justice is taking a lengthy holiday for COVID. They're all working from their homes. I think most of them are quite happy with the way the fact that they don't have to show up for work anymore. So I'm not sure what level of legal advice um, uh, the Prime Minister has received with regard to this. But uh, if people are advising him that this type of conduct uh, towards Canadian citizens is justifiable under the Oaks test, I think he's being seriously misadvised. 
you know, I think the I think the prime minister also needs to remember that there's a lot of senior judges that like to go golfing in Arizona and head down south with their families over the winter. And there's a lot of people, I'm sure, that are not happy over the prospect of being, you know, this you know the subject of arbitrary imprisonment on their return uh, to Canada by Justin Trudeau. So what would you tell somebody who finds himself in this situation, certainly uh, now or until the 22nd? I mean, what are your rights? I mean, if, so, if you're getting off a plane or you're crossing the border and they start to take you away, what, what can you do? Well, that's the, that's the problem. I mean, once you're, once you're in this system, there's very little you can do. I don't say, first of all, I don't think legally Canadians have an obligation to comply. But then if, uh, if Trudeau's stormtroopers are actually instructed to use force on people that don't want to, uh, that don't want to comply and don't want to go along with it, all they're going to have at the end of the day is a nice lawsuit against the government, uh, you know, seeking damages for uh, unjust imprisonment and arbitrary detention. The long and the short of it is, um, you know, it's a very difficult circumstance for anybody to be put in, and that's why we're proceeding forward as quickly as we can and have filed, uh, you know, Nicholas Colvin's, um, or, I'm sorry, Dominic Colvin's application, um, you know, on a preemptory basis to try to get into court as quickly as possible because, uh, you know, if you, think, if you think the vaccines are a mess, uh, the, what yeah. Trudeau's doing to our air travel and our air borders now is going to be ten times worse than the incompetence that he's exhibited with regard to our lack of vaccines. Yeah, and you kind of said an oxymoron there. You said you're trying to quickly get something into a court. I mean, the, the courts move, as you know, is a glacial pace. So how long do you expect this to actually take no, no, to no, get I, this? I, yeah. I, I have to say, I've been appearing in the federal court, uh, you know, for you know 30 years of my career. Uh, the federal court does a very good job of moving quickly on matters uh, such as this when they have to. Okay. And obviously, we've, we've intentionally... Uh, filed a very stripped down application um, you know that's limited to you know the you know the very key points that are at issue backed up by a very simple affidavit and we're demanding that the government justify what they're doing and given the fact that um, you know the provincial governments themselves that are managing um, you know covid cases under provincial emergency powers you know aren't you know uh, aren't you know aren't incarcerating people um, awaiting tests I think it's going to be very difficult for the federal government to justify. You know, on what basis does somebody flying into the country with a negative test, you know, need to be incarcerated? They should simply go home and then be told to, you know, get tested again in three days under whatever provincial testing regime is in place. As I, you know, as I've said before, in Alberta, we trust people who are symptomatic, that have actual symptoms of COVID, to self-report to, you know, attend for testing, to drive themselves home from testing, you know, and to self-isolate. So, you know, I'm not sure what, um, you know, what Trudeau's excuse is for, um, uh, for, for locking people up for days or weeks at a time uh, when none of the provincial governments that are managing these things think that this kind of draconian treatment is necessary. Are you surprised at how complacent and compliant people are about all these things? I mean, there's a whole bunch of civil well, rights issues up in, I, but, I, but this particular. What, what I have to say, Alex, is with the, you know, with very rare exceptions, yourself included. What's surprising me, and I, I'm putting you in the exceptional category. What surprises me is the complacency of our media and the degree to which our media has been completely bought off 
by uh, by the Trudeau government and how complacent the media is with regard to these issues. I mean, you're a breath of fresh air. I mean, I was speaking to a, a reporter this afternoon who was saying, well, shouldn't Mr. Colvin have expected to get arrested when he comes back to the country? He, he voluntarily left for a, you know, for a Caribbean vacation. Shouldn't he expect to be incarcerated when he returns? I mean, it's the most asinine thing I've ever heard. So we're Canadians yeah. that have, you know, that are free citizens who have protected rights under the charter. I mean, on no circumstance should anybody leaving the country expect to be incarcerated when they return simply because we have a prime minister who's grossly mismanaging a pandemic. Yeah, this this is this is one of those things where I think because he's got money, it's probably easy to to lash out. But for me, this is uh, we have a process in this country. We have we used to have due process, uh, due um, process, and, and it just seems to be thrown out the window. So I appreciate your time on this. I'd love to stay in touch with you to see where this thing goes, and I assume that people can uh, call you up and join if the, this fight if they've been um, dragged away. No, absolutely. And Alex, again, I want I want to thank you uh, personally. You're a real breath of fresh air, and it's really, really important that the media get the actual message out as opposed to acting as apologists for the Trudeau government. So thank you very much. No, my pleasure. All that court uh, reporting I did for years taught me a thing or two. We'll talk again, Jeffrey, and um, we'll stay in touch. All right. All the best, Alex. Thank you. That is Jeffrey Rath. And he's right. Look... <laughs> I think people are so distracted by this pandemic that they don't realize what is eroding here. And it's one thing to do something for the greater good of public health, and we're all doing our part. It's an entirely different thing to completely throw basic rights out the window. And it's not okay to haul someone off a plane and not give them any any opportunity to talk to a lawyer or tell you what you've been you know, accused of, nothing. I mean, honestly, in a criminal matter, you would have more information and be given more rights than what we are seeing now. And it's just not okay. So I'll be very interested to see where this case goes. Uh, because if you didn't like G20, this is much, much worse. And G20 was pretty bad. Alex Pearson here on Point, and this is Global News Radio. Of course, you can join us live Monday through Friday starting 6.30 sharp here. Alex Pearson on point, and this is Global News Radio.